Welcome to episode number 32 of the TechMap podcast. My name is Andy Bargery. In today's show, I am chatting with Somi Aryan from Smart Cookie Media. And Somi is a real deep expert in how to market to millennials. And she's done an awful lot of research to understand what is it that makes that millennial audience different? What is it that we as a marketing community need to understand about how we are going to engage and market to that audience? So I hope that uh, you enjoy this show. Please, as ever, do leave us some feedback. Send me a note in the comments or an email or uh, a comment on Facebook, wherever you find this podcast. We'd love to have some feedback as to how you are enjoying the show. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this conversation with the lovely Somi Arian. Somi, good morning. Good morning to you, Andy. How are you today? I'm very, very good. I've been working very hard and uh, there is so much going on right now. So I'm always excited. Excellent. Okay, well, that's a great way to start the podcast. Thanks, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, what I'm, what I'm really hoping to explore with you is the idea that millennials are changing the way in which marketeers need to to market, I suppose. But before we get into that uh, conversation, it would be really great if you would just introduce yourself and what you've been up to and what's led you to to being a bit of an expert in this area. Okay, so this is an interesting one because um, I actually um, come from a TV background. So when uh, I worked in TV, I did a lot of reality uh, type work. And then um, after five years or so in the TV company and that I was uh, at, I felt like I wasn't growing anymore. So I wanted to explore other options. Um, I wanted to go into British TV, even though the TV company that I used to work for was uh, in London. It was a Middle Eastern channel. So when I came out of that TV channel, I found out that it was really hard to get into British uh, TV. So this is the truth of, uh, you know, the whole millennial thing it just sort of developed uh, a little bit later so this is kind of like the journey it started with me not being able to find a place in british tv because i found out that um quite frankly they they were really snobbish and if you didn't have um british credits it was really really hard to get into so one of the things that happened to me was like after five years of working as a senior producer um they were telling me to go back and start from you know from scratch and uh, do work experience and i was like just sorry and just just not gonna happen so i wanted to start my own production company but then when i started the production company i realized oh my fucking god (laughs) excuse my my uh, french but you know this like everything that the industry everything is changing so fast and i realized that actually there is not a future in this you know i realized that um what was happening uh, with automation and with uh, you know artificial intelligence look, there wasn't going to be any uh, future in that industry if you just okay. wanted to be a production kind of person you know okay. so uh, i figured that i had to really get uh, get to grips with what this disruption means and how it's going to affect my business. 
And then when I started working with various companies, I realized that they were uh, in the same position. They were in the same boat and they were going to be disrupted as well. And I could see that so many companies didn't see that. Um, yeah. And uh, I realized that a lot of this change was coming from the millennial generation. The way yeah. that we behave, the way that we uh, consume media, you know, the way that we don't watch advertising anymore. Uh, all of those things had implications for my business, but also for so many other businesses that I was trying to work with, you know, my clients. So I actually studied philosophy of science and its impact on political philosophy. So uh, this was in 2009 when I uh, came out of university in St. Andrews. Uh, I studied in, in St. Andrews University in Scotland. And uh, during that time, I did a lot of research on something called complexity theory. Okay. Now, complexity theory is the study of how patterns of behavior emerge when the individual members of an organization are connected. All right. So this could have implications for organizations like um, the societies or organisms within your body. Like, for example, how does cancer emerge? Okay. So that's all of that is part of the study of complexity, how things emerge. But from my point of view, what I was interested in was that to understand how internet had changed human behavior and how patterns of behavior had emerged as a result of connectivity. Got you. Okay. okay. And of course, the internet is the biggest change to connectivity in the history of man, isn't it? So that's obviously exactly. what's, what's led to this tremendous change in uh, not just marketing, but the way in which we are living our lives, um, particularly led by millennials. Yes. So what is interesting in terms of millennials is that we are the first generation that came into contact with that. Okay. So I, I call us uh, digital natives. Now you could say that older millennials like myself, you know, that maybe we are not entirely native to digital technologies quite the same way as the ones that were born like maybe a decade later but yes. as far as i remember i've always remembered being connected you know in the past um you know 20 years or so yeah i've always been connected so yeah. even though maybe we were not born into that technology what's interesting about millennials was that all of our adulthood has been connected Okay. Yes. So, okay. so just on that point there, it's worthwhile saying that millennials, for those that don't know, is anyone born between 1980 and the year 2000, right? That's right. Yes. It's quite a wide spectrum. And as you say there, there's a difference somewhat between someone that was born in 1999 to someone that was yeah. born in 1981, for example. But for yeah. you, towards the end of that time frame, you, you still have a kind of digital first, a digital native exactly. uh, sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what, What's going to be super interesting is when my children, so my children are sort of six and eight, they yeah. are already totally engaged in that digital world. So it's going to be interesting to see what that shift looks like next. But yeah, and for now, let's focus on one age bracket there, which is millennials. Uh, and and I always talk about this actually in uh, when I give le lectures and talks about millennials and Gen Z. What, the difference between millennials and Gen Z is that. Gen Z, in addition to being digital natives, they're going to be AI native. Okay. So they are growing up with artificial intelligence. Yes. They're already um, interacting with Siri and, you know, Alexa yes. and so many things that to us was not really native. So we are coming into contact with those technology, kind of like Gen Xers are 
have come in contact uh, with in you know with internet right so yeah. especially yeah. like like younger gen Xs, people that are in their say mid 40s right now so there we can compare them in terms of how they uh, relate to digital technologies and to internet um, we can compare them to us as opposed to Gen Z. So this is quite an important thing to think about in terms of this is a spectrum. You know, people are always trying to put um, people into an age bracket. I always explain being a, being a millennial is not about someone's age. It's about how people's behavior is impacted by technology. So you might be a Gen Xer or a baby boomer, but you might behave totally like a millennial. Because yeah, it's all about how you have integrated technology into your life. Okay. I, I'm sorry to cut in there, sorry, no. but, I, but p- part of the reason why I first came across you is because you produced this really excellent film called The Millennial Disruption. And I, I highly recommend that for anyone to watch that. If And I can put a link in the show notes. But in that in, t- in that video, you have an interview, and I think it's with um, the, the chief marketing officer for Land Rover, but I'm sure you'll correct me. But he talks about the fact that he, even though he's probably mid fifties, I hope I've got that right. You know, he behaves like a millennial because. Oh no, it's Steinway. Well. Yeah, it's my client. He's my client uh, from Steinway. He's Steinway. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah, the managing director of uh, Steinway. He's sixties in in the film. He says that he's sixty-seven years old. He's now sixty-eight years old. You know, and he uh, behaves absolutely like a millennial, and he's the biggest advocate of what we are doing. So uh, it, it's entirely true that, you know, being a millennial, having that attitude of the way in which that um, you integrate technology into your life, that attitude is not necessarily about age. No, it's a mindset, isn't it? It is a mindset. That's why I actually just uh, wrote an article, which I can share with you to share with your audience. It, it's called The Millennial Mindset. Um, and uh, it's about 10 factors that drive the millennials' consumer behavior. So um, what is really important to understand is first, what is the difference between digital native and not digital native? I always give the example of English not being my first language. I always say, you know, being a digital native is like being the native speaker of an uh, of a of a language you know if you're trying to learn another language as an adult like i did you know i came to the uk when i was 23 so um i had to learn english as an adult and it's much harder you know there's no yeah. way that you will ever be quite like a digital sorry uh, quite like a native speaker of that language so you know, not being brought up with digital technologies has a similar kind of effect. You could say that, um, you know, if you're not born, if you're not brought up with it, no matter how um, good you get with technology, there's always going to be some aspects of it that will give away that, you know, uh, that might frustrate you. Yeah, I, so, totally, agree. I totally agree with that. And, and and what's interesting and what I want to explore today is, you know, we've obviously seen this shift. We've seen the the, the millennials um, come of age, as it were, and we've seen how this has been changing the landscape. You know, some of the obvious examples are, you see in industry, you'll see a, a, a good well-established brands, for example, Topshop at the moment, going through a huge uh, period of disruption because they haven't been able to adapt to the changing way in which millennials like to buy fashion. Yes. So it would be interesting to explore that. But there was something in the, in the film that stood out to me. Uh, it would be good just to start with that. And I think it's 
I think you say something along the lines of the goal of marketing is no longer about promoting a product. It's about encouraging people to spend time with your brand. And I think that was the soundbite that caught my attention. I think I saw that on LinkedIn. And that's what led me to really want to talk to you because that's interesting. That's really interesting because as marketeers, you've seen a shift from, you know, what used to be producing a couple of big creative concepts or films or spots, whatever it is a year, and then just running the advertising to now you're seeing brands becoming much more about being media companies. And and I think possibly the very best example of that is Red Bull. Uh, So it'd be good just to get your thoughts. Amazon, Amazon, think about Amazon. What is Amazon Prime, right? Like when you watch Amazon Prime series, you're spending time with Amazon brand, you know, and people don't think of it like that. Why would a, um, retail giant, you know, you could say Amazon is a retail giant. It's so hard to even define what Amazon is anymore. But why would they put so much effort, so much time, so much money into creating the Amazon Prime series? You think about that, you know, all of those documentaries, all of those um, drama series. The reason why they do that is because they want you to spend time with their brand. You know, Red Bull is a good example. Apple is a good example. So, Facebook, you know, so they are all of these, or even think about LinkedIn. Why is it, for example, I became a LinkedIn top voice because of my level of engagement, because of content that I put on LinkedIn, the kind of engagement that it creates, it helps people to stay more on the platform. Therefore, they are spending more time with LinkedIn. And that to LinkedIn is value, Mm, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So when I posted, um, uh, probably must be the, uh, there was, there was a post that I put on LinkedIn about how the goal of modern marketing is to get people to spend time with you. And it went really crazy because so many people disagreed with me. Lots of, especially <laughs> yes. lots, of, you know, I, I think it started with, um, I don't, I'm sure he doesn't mind me mentioning Mark Ritson, who, uh, you know, posted something on my uh, post yes. and uh, responded to my post. And he never um, engaged with it properly. You know, he just posted a couple of sentences and I asked him, I sent him a message. I said, look, I admire what you're doing. I, you know, you're obviously a senior in this, in this area. And I had actually contacted him to be part of my documentary because I wanted to have a discourse and uh, I wanted to have opposing views. But um, at the time, he didn't get back to me. But that comment from Mark Ritson then went into a spiral. And so many people um, said that this is not true, that that the goal of modern marketing, uh, the goal of marketing has not, not changed. And, you know, it was like so many different, oh my God, it was crazy. But <laughs> I, stand, I stand by what I said, because when I look at modern modern brands like Amazon, you know, like Red Bull, like Virgin, you know, Apple, all of these companies, what their, their entire uh, thoughts and, and uh, you know, the process of marketing and the way that they're approaching marketing, it's all around that idea mm. of getting people to spend time with you, not just get their attention, but get their engagement. Yeah, I, I agree. Right. And you know what? I think it was Mark Ritson's comment that, that led me to see your post because I follow Mark and he's got a very large following of, yes. I guess you might say, traditional marketeers. Um, and I think he talks a lot about not really believing in the difference between uh, marketing and digital marketing is all just one thing, right? And and a lot of the content that he puts out is to show that, 
you know, the good old fashioned TV spot, print ads, outdoor radio, that still really works from a marketing performance point of view. But I think where, where your opinion differs here is that sure, those, they still work now, but for how long? You know, the, yeah, the and also, here is different. Yes. And also they work not for millennials <laughs> and not for Gen Z. Okay. Yes. Because I can see that we are, when we are in the same room, like say with my boyfriend and his children who are 12 and 13, we are all in the same room, but they are on their own devices <laughs> with a headphone. Yes. Right? right. So they, and all of those things, they still work, but not for millennials and not for Gen Z, yes. not to the yes. same degree. There might be some millennials that still watch TV. I know that, for example, in the UK, Love Island is still doing pretty well, you know, but even then, <laughs> a lot of people that watch Love Island don't necessarily sit through the adverts. You know, I know lots of people that uh, they start 15 minutes later so that they can skip through the ads or they watch the next day on their iPad, you know? Yeah, absolutely. um, Those consumption patterns have really changed, you know. I mean, I'm just outside that millennial bracket, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) But I was still, you know, if I'm watching, and it wouldn't be Love Island, but let's say I'm watching, um, I don't know, any TV show and the adverts come on, you know, I whip out my phone, smartphone, I'm on the Twitter, and I'm seeing what people are talking about in relation to that show. So I'm not engaging with those adverts and I'm not a millennial. But maybe I've got that millennial mindset there as I'm more engaged with the tech. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm le- I'm more difficult for advertisers to reach through traditional channels. Yeah, and the truth is that look, um, I got invited to speak at uh, Vanity Vanity Fair uh, headquarters and Tatler um, headquarters in Bocas. Like, why is it that these people are interested? We actually did a a screening of the documentary, and we had a a very engaged conversation about how things are changing. But mm. why do you think they would invite somebody like me to, you know, when I say somebody like me, I mean somebody who is a complete outsider, right? That I'm not from that traditional, um, you know, magazine type uh, industry. So why would they bring in people like me to speak or to, you know, watch my documentary about how the industry is changing? It's because they know that it's changing. Yeah, absolutely. All of these um, media channels, like currently, for example, I read a number of um, business type magazines, but in all honesty, I only started reading these magazines because I wanted to write for them, you know, or just because I started to think, okay, like there, because I thought there are some people like Mark Ritson and people who follow him, that the only way probably for me to get to them is if I get published in these places or if I get mentioned in these places, right? So I started reading them. And of all the ones that I've been reading, The Economist is my favorite. And it's partly because they have a really good audio system. So you can, uh, you can listen to yeah. the, uh, to the articles. And I think there are, by far the most in-depth articles. I think that they're by far the most in-depth because most of the other ones, I don't want to mention them, but most of the other ones, they're more like they're just telling you the news, but there is no value in that in yes. to that degree anymore because I can find the news anywhere. What I'm yes. looking for is an in-depth 
interpretation. Well, I the, think that they, that's a yeah. reflection of the quality of journalism these days is that because the speed of news is, is, is so quick these days that there's, you get much less quality investigative journalism, don't you? And that's probably that's the right. And, it's, and it's, it's, look, and I completely empathise. I completely empathise and I understand what this means to them and how difficult it is. Because just like I told you in the beginning of this podcast, how I realised that my industry was being um, disrupted and I had to change my business model, right? So when I started the company, it had nothing to do with millennial engagement. I was a production company like any other production company. But then I realized that I wasn't going to be able to keep that going mm. because now people have got, you know, the ability to record really good videos on their um on their iPhones or, you know, on their smart, smartphones. So why would they pay for a production company unless I can give them something that they can't get otherwise, right? So the market has changed. The, the, okay. the B2B market has also changed. There are lots of people who are able to just pick up the phone and say something to it and post it on uh, social media and be entertaining and maybe get some following. But whether that will translate into landing several hundred thousand pounds jobs which is what i have done with my content you know whether that would translate into that probably not and in most cases it doesn't so uh i was able to look at not just the production aspect uh you have to like for example next week i'm giving a talk um at uh, a conference in spain about the future of legal industry and how the legal industry is being uh, disrupted and what they can do to uh, go from becoming a commodity you know, because knowledge is becoming commoditized mm. so one of the um one of the most important aspects of most jobs in the past has been technical uh, technical abilities and knowledge, both of those are being disrupted because mm. of automation, right? Okay. So as humans, we need to go from being uh, just the conveyor of this technology to looking at the bigger picture and being able to deliver contextual creativity, right? And I'm writing a book on this topic and it's all about Essentially, there are four things, there are four skills that will save you from, uh, I know we are talking about marketing here, but this is quite important. And, and for marketers, it's really, for it. really important, right? For yeah, marketers, it's very, very important to think in terms of these four aspects of human skills, which is uh, mindfulness. You know, m- much of our marketing in the past has been, you can say mindless, you know, because it's all been about a repetition of the same thing. It doesn't work anymore. No. We be mindful of how we engage with people in, um, you know, a, on a much more personalized basis. So mindfulness is a very big aspect. Critical thinking and uh, contextual um, creativity, which is what I just, you know, was just explaining how that could really save your job, even as a marketeer, which is what it has done for me and my company. And uh, emotional intelligence, which is the most important, I would say, you know, this is this is the one thing that can separate us from uh, artificial intelligence. Do, do you think that as a as an industry uh, of marketeers, of communicators, that we have those four skills in abundance? Or do you think that... Unfortunately not. And it's not just marketeers. Um, I have always... Um, explain this in uh, I'm doing a lot of talks these days about how 
the career landscape is changing. Marketing career is just one of them. And uh, unfortunately, we have gone through millennia where we have put more emphasis on technical skills as opposed to human skills, right? So if you think about the types of jobs that are going to be disrupted in the future and are already being disrupted are jobs that don't require empathy. Okay, that's quite a important thing to think about. I'm so, thinking about where that goes back to. If you think about the skills that our children are coming out of schools with, they, they, they're kind of taught the technical stuff and then less about the emotional creative side of things is my, my sense, seeing my children going through school at the moment. It's, it seems very much that the focus is on those core technical subjects, you know, the maths and the, the sciences, for example. And, we're, and we're, we're losing the human side. We're losing the creative side that's so important. Yeah, and, and I would say that we are not losing. We never really had it. Mm, you know, okay. we never had it in our uh, tech, in in our educational system. It's always been the emphasis. Like coming from a Middle Eastern background, I can tell you that you know my parents and everybody around me, they're just putting so much emphasis always on achievements in terms of you know the grades that you get. Yes. You know, when I was thirteen years old, my mom. Uh, uh, this is like this is a very bad memory, and I've never talked about this publicly. But one day, my mom comes to school, and she basically berates me in front of other students and in front of my teachers, telling me that I'm nothing, that I will amount to nothing because I had got bad grades, and wow. you know, and, and like it just shattered. I was only thirteen; it shattered my entire, you know. It's, it's self-confidence in self-confidence. front of everyone, yeah. you know? And she told me that I will never amount to anything, that I'm nothing, that I, you know, just because I, I didn't get good grades. And my uh, teachers had the same opinion of me. What they didn't understand at the time was that I had ADHD, but I, but I was in Iran and it wasn't diagnosed. So, yeah. so I grew up and then I realized that, oh, I, I have this thing and I need to manage it. And then that became a source of creativity. And now, you know, then I came to the UK on my own in 2005. And I was like, you know, I had no support, nothing from nobody. And I managed to completely transform my life. And now I have two master's degrees in political science and philosophy, you know, transatlantic studies. And then I went on to become a senior producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I started my own company. And now I have events where the kind of people that come to my thought leadership events are people like the chief marketing officer of BBC or like the managing director of uh, Mary Claire, you know, the CEO of Bentley. You know, like these are the kind of people that are that are listening to me for advice. So you proved your mom very wrong, haven't you? Yeah, a hundred percent. So well done. You know, like for lots of people, that would have been the end of you. <laughs> like, but I think that, but. The way I changed it was by learning these skills. Nobody teaches you these things. You know, I was like, I want to be successful. What do I need to be successful? And what I realized was that what I needed to be successful was emotional intelligence. That was the most important thing because that was the thing that enabled me at the age of 17 to be able to become, you know, a VIP tour guide for European tourists that came to the, to Tehran. And then from there, I was able to then get a job in European embassies in Tehran. And then, you know, 
uh, worked for United Nations. So emotional intelligence. The other thing is creativity, just being able to nurture creativity. Now, the question is, how can we bring these things into marketing, which is one of the things that I'm trying to do for our clients. And the way that I always approach this, the first thing I would say is that look for inspirational stories within your organization, you know, within your customers. Don't go directly for trying to promote stuff, you know, because for most people, they think that content, it means promotional content. Well, when I say, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, I'm totally, I'm totally with you there. Uh, but I think it'll be interesting because what we haven't talked about yet is what is it about the kind of millennial mindset that's just that's changing and, and, that, and that what's driving this change in, in the uh, communications as well. So we talked a bit about um, obviously being a digital native, but that's not the only reason that millennials look at and engage with brands differently, is it? There must be different factors apart from just being... 100%. Yeah. So I, I mentioned earlier that I just published an article about this and I talk about it in the documentary as well. There are 10 factors that shape the millennial mindset, okay? So these 10 factors are things like abundance of choice. They just have a lot of choice. So mm. you can't reach them just by showing them a product. You know, I'm always surprised when I go to uh, my Instagram feed and I see really huge brands that all of their content that they're posting in their newsfeed, I'm not talking about their advertised content, content that's in their newsfeed is always about talking about some level of the product or service. You know, what were they better off talking about? So just telling stories around the brand rather than talking specifically so about So they need to be finding inspirational stories basically it comes to two two things either it needs to be entertainment or education so in my case you know for uh, a b2b business i've gone down the route of education it doesn't mean that if you're a b2c you can't do that you could 100 percent do that so you can have a whole educational series about a topic that is not necessarily always directly even related you know, that it could be something that is mildly related. So, for mm -hmm. example, yeah. Apple's, when you think about Apple, um, I know that that series, that was the first attempt by Apple. I know it didn't do that well, but personally, I really liked it. Apple's plan Planet of the Apps was very much in the right direction. Okay. Or when you think about um, Amazon Prime series, you know, these are things that it's like they're entertaining. So it's no different uh, to how say an influencer would approach a uh, content so your content has to be either entertaining or educational or, or, or both or both exactly yeah. ideally both if you could have an element of both that's why i made the documentary which is you know it's not a me sitting and giving a lecture but uh, it is entertaining it, but at the same time it's very educational yes, yes. so so that's the kind of thing the content that they should be thinking about if you're a bank you know for example say I'm, uh, I, I bank with HSBC. I can tell you that HSBC is doing almost nothing to keep me as a customer because as soon as there is a challenger bank out there that is going to do something more interesting, they're probably going to grab my attention. Mm, so no a bank like HSBC, what they need to be doing is creating really in-depth uh, documentaries, maybe one a year, you know, but like that sort of in-depth content sometimes one a year is enough okay. so you need 
a number of different types of content. You need the daily kind of or the weekly kind of content, like the ones that I post on uh, on social media, which is just to kind of stay on top of people's mind and then give them a bit of repetition, a bit of reminder. You need okay. that type of thing anyway. But okay. every now and then you need a good piece of content that is like really giving Absolutely. Something. And that, that always used to be the advertising creator, the big campaign of the year. But of course, now that's the model has moved on. OK, yeah. so we've got abundance of choice. We've got so kind of digital first. What else? What are the other factors that are? The other one is okay. speed of change. Okay? OK, so the millennial generation and Gen Z, you know, we have kept up with the speed of change it doesn't bother us the way that it bothers maybe you know slightly older generation and the problem is that in a lot of companies the command of control in some ways in marketing is coming from uh, above and it's coming from people that are not really engaged on social mm-hmm. media you know like a lot of marketing directors are not necessarily engaged they are not really posting on social media they are not really kind of getting a feel for what it feels like, what it means to try and create an engagement. I always suggest that, um, you know, as a digital marketing, uh, a head of digital marketing or digital marketing director, you need to have at least pick up one social media, whether it's Instagram or LinkedIn. I mean, LinkedIn obviously is great for B2B as well. So pick one social media channel, if you're very brave, go for YouTube, but it's very, very hard. You know, I, think, yes. I think LinkedIn is, or even Facebook, you know, it's something that you like, you know, that you like the interface or could, could be even Twitter. So pick one of them and really get engaged and try to grow an audience. See what it actually feels like. Because most of the time when we deal with marketing directors of companies, they have never done this. So yeah. it's so hard for me and my team and their team you know, the, the kind of more junior millennials in their team to be able to explain to them what it actually takes, mm. you know, like yeah, they don't. Absolutely. And to convince them to take a risk, you know, for them, the safe bet exactly. is always to fall back on what they know. Yeah. Uh, but of course so, that will only work for so much time now because you're kind of running out, you're running out of, um, uh, I suppose, older demographics to market to in those traditional formats. Exactly. So another, another um, uh, aspect is, the I, I call it peers versus seniors. You know, in the past, we would look up to uh, our seniors for their opinion on what to buy. So a lot of brands had an advantage because if they got your grandfather, they would get your father. Yes. You're right? There's, there's a watchmaker in your film that talks about this, isn't it? I think it's a watchmaker yeah. or it could be it's a, a tailor. It's a, yeah, it's a watch yeah. dealer. He's yeah. a is a watch, um, uh, vintage watch dealer. Yeah. And, you know, like the kind of people, so say, think about the kind of people that used to go to this um, watch dealer, who is also one of our clients, you know, those people, um, they could maybe bring their sons, but then their grandsons are not going to go there because they're going to go on Netoporter or, or Mesoporter, you know, or yeah. they're going to go online and they're going to, um, Google and, and find uh, a watch that, you know, like one of the things that I found, I noticed with a lot of heritage brands is that when I asked them to tell me what's special about their product, 
they say it's just special, <laughs> you know. Like they say, they say like it's great quality. It's just not enough. Anymore, yes, you need to you understand. Know? Millennials no. want to understand the reason why it's great quality. Yeah, not, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like you, I want you to be able to talk to me about this watch for an hour. But I know, don't, for four I don't, hours, I don't think that that's just millennials. I think that that's all of us, anybody now, unless I have just got more of a millennial mindset. You know, I want to understand why something is high quality if I'm going to spend, you know, good money on that product. Even quality alone is not sufficient anymore. Okay. Because you want, you also want great design. You want an ecosystem. You know, you think about that's what Apple is giving to people. Mm, absolutely. Apple is providing, and Amazon, think about that, right? These are brands that are providing an ecosystem. We are now looking for an ecosystem. We are not just looking for a product. Mm. And that's what, what we are trying to do. That's why, you know, when I talk about millennial engagement, I talk about so many different aspects of the way in which this will affect the companies, mm, you know, okay. in the to be environment, I'm trying with my team, you know, we are trying to um, provide an ecosystem, not just one product, which is here's a video, go and, you know, do what you want. Push it out and put some spend on it. Yeah. Okay. So I, yeah. I, another thing that you put in your video, and this it's come across a lot for me recently is the why, you know, millennials. And I think everybody now is much more interested in what is the, the substance or the truth or the reason why you've created your business and your brand. And I think that's really fascinating. I took a class yeah. at the UCL's uh, business incubator recently, and I, I explained to them the importance of the why and showed them the fantastic Simon Sinek video. Um, yeah. And I think that that is so important these days, isn't it? So is that more so for millennials? Because my feeling is yeah. that it relates to everybody. Yes, it is. It is more uh, important to millennials partly because of all the reasons that we just talked about, you know, because there's so much choice. Why should I go with this? Mm. You know, I can get anything instantly. Why should I wait for this thing? Right. Or, uh, you know, like, uh, for example, uh, just because my parents say that this is good or just because my grandparents used, you know, hepatic Philippe, why should I, you know, why not, you know, why, why should I not go for another brand that is, engaging with me that is like giving me so much interesting stuff and it looks great and it's you know it's just that's why i'm saying that just having the good quality is not is no, not enough anymore so okay. part of that why you know part of communicating your why okay let me let me let me uh, go a step back here one thing that i have noticed is that in many cases when i work with really big companies and that again i don't want to mention is that I don't actually get the feeling that they have a why, you know, you know, maybe they had a why like 150 years ago when they started, but they haven't innovated and they haven't kept right. up. It's, right. It's and difficult in a large organization to, to make that organization live and breathe the why if it was invented 150 years ago, I suppose. It's so, very hard. Yeah. 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 And, and in many cases, I see that the why doesn't translate, you know, the why that they had in the past maybe doesn't translate mm. into today's uh, culture and into uh, today's lifestyle of millennials. Uh, so one of the reasons why millennials seem to like brands like, say, Apple, Lululemon, you know, you know, like, why do you pay so much for a Lululemon yoga pants, uh, a pair of yoga pants that, uh, you know, that you could um, buy something much cheaper, 
that may look as good, yeah. but you, you go for that brand, right? So these are brands that are kind of getting into that millennial mindset and they are trying to um, really fit into the millennial lifestyle. Yes. Okay. Right? So a, there are a few layers to this why. It's kind of like an onion and, and there needs to be a very strong why at the core of the company that may not necessarily be needed to be communicated with the outside world directly. You know, you can then translate that why in terms of what it means to other people. Okay. Yeah. And I so, think if you have a very clear central why at the center as well, you can make sure that your you know, overall business objectives align to that why. Uh, and that exactly. gives you a lot more authenticity in terms of what you're doing. So I'm totally sold on having a, having, having a why, having the why, or at least understanding yeah. what it is. The why is what gets you wake and get up in the morning mm. and want to go to work, you know. And when we hire people in our team, you know, we really we talk about these things so much in the office that everybody is just so um, connected with it, you know. And and if they are not connected with it, then they know that this is not the right place for them. So then they will they will move on and do something else. Mm. So it's uh, it's really important for me. My why is so strong for me uh, in terms of my, there's my personal why, and then there is my community level why, and then there's my global level why, you know, and, and these are so important to me. And, and I try to bring that into the content, the personal, the very, very personal one, I don't necessarily talk about much. You know, I gave you a hint today with what happened with my mom, you know, <laughs> and, and now, and now as I, you know, uh, as I become more successful and, you know, I get to talk to people more comfortably about um, my background, I sometimes uh, maybe show hints of that. But essentially my why comes from my pain. Now, I wanted to create a world where people, you know, I, I understand that pain is a good thing. Uh, and if you reflect on pain, you uh, make progress. One of my favorite um, authors, and, and I, I mean, it's much more than an author. Um, you could say entrepreneur, entrepreneur, or my role model in life is Ray Dalio. And he's had a lot of impact on my mindset and then the way that I think about business. And um, so, I mean, so Ray, Dalio, me, Ray Dalio, I know the name, but it's just not coming to me. What, what's... Okay. Ray Dalio is is the, the founder of a company called Bridgewater. Okay. Uh, that is the fifth biggest hedge fund in the world and is the first biggest independent hedge fund in the world. He wrote a book called The Principles. You should check it out. Okay. Um, and it's uh, always on my desk and I always, it's actually in, on, in that corner now. And uh, he is one of the most successful people uh, that you would ever get to know in business. He is very understated. Lots of people necessarily don't know about him, um, but uh, you really should ch check him out. Everybody should check him out. Yeah, okay. So like he talks about the fact that pain plus progress, sorry, pain plus reflection equals progress. Yeah, and that has been my motto mm. uh, in life, you know? So um, it's really what, clear as well that you've built on that experience you had when you were 13. And that's kind of almost what's driven you on to the success you're, you're enjoying today, which is fascinating. Yeah. And that's like that experience, which just was, I gave you a glimpse of what it was. I had a very bad childhood, like, yeah. really, really bad childhood. And, you know, and I wanted to, uh, I always thought like, why am I suffering and how can I diminish suffering in the world? So my real 
kind of why goes back to how can I get people to feel pain but not suffer? Yeah. Because okay. because pain is important. Pain is what makes you have progress. But how can you diminish suffering? Because if you are able to diminish suffering in the world and still feel pain, then you can progress. But if you become numb, if you don't have any pain, if you don't feel the pain, then you can't progress, right? You can't make progress. You know, you know so, Tommy, I feel like we've steered miles away from millennials, but it's really interesting. So This is important for millennials, right? Yeah, okay. It's important. And this is hugely important. Now, as a brand, you know, you need to have that at your core on some level. What is that your absolute core reason for being, right? And then you need to then take that a level. I don't go around talking about my pain and, you know, my suffering. I don't talk about that in my content that I post out, you know, but obviously in the context of an interview or if I'm writing a book, I have to kind of explain a little bit about where that's come from. But in but in my content, in my documentary, I don't talk about that sort of thing. But it's the driving force, right? So now if you are, say, a bank, if you are a cosmetic company, you know, if you are a skincare company, if there is some level of deep conviction for why you're doing why you're, what you're doing, then what you will do is you're going to translate that into what it means to other people. So for me, that pain and, uh, and progress has translated into helping other people, whether they are companies, whether they are personal brands, to understand intergenerational differences and to see how they can that how that understanding will help them better communicate. So I think that comes back to you know uh, that comes back to brands just being more in touch with and then more of, with their their why sorry and then and then being more authentic in how they build their business. So a great example of that, and it's not a new company, but it's the Body Shop was started mm-hmm. by Anita Roddick just in her bathroom creating, uh, I think, organic um, bath. Uh, soap products and shower gels and that sort of stuff and grew into an enormous enterprise based on um, her wanting to create a business around organic produce that wasn't animal tested and so on and so forth and created an enormous an enormous enterprise off the back of that vision of that um, her why so that's that's nothing new I guess but I suppose it's just become more important more to the forefront because millennials have so much more access to choice, so much exactly. more access to product, and yeah, okay, I get it. So it's just kind of, it's not something new, but it is something that's super important and it, it, more important these days. It is more important because in the past there weren't that much choice. There wasn't that much choice. So um, if you, for example, wanted to buy a cereal, you know, there weren't that many options. Mm. Okay. Now there's so much, you know, if you wanted to buy like anything, you know, a, a fashion item. So I think that the main reason why the why today is so important is a ch- change, a choice, mm. you know, because there's just so much option. Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, people want to buy something that they have some level of emotional connection with because everything else has become commoditized. Yes. Um, so the other, the other thing that, uh, you know, kind of, ties into that why for me is the impact of technology because i could see um, growing up you know in iran i could see that the one thing that could save me from this 
sorry, shithole, you know, that I was like living in, in, in that culture, that environment that I hated that I was growing up in. I was like, the one thing that can save me from this is technology. I was like, if I get to grab, if I get to grip with uh, how technology can change my life and how I can, you know, transform my life, you know, that is going to, uh, that's going to save me. Mm. But then when I, when I studied it more and when I, studied complexity theory, I realized that technology is just as good and just as much as it can be so good, it can be so bad and detrimental. Mm. And, and that's why I do a lot of research on the impact of technology on the younger generation. Uh, that'll be fascinating, you know, because I think there is lots of research and studies coming out where the, the impact of technology is not necessarily a positive thing. It's having a negative impact on our younger generations. So I think it'd be great to see what you unearth in your research and I, and I guess that kind of leads us on to you know what's coming next because the the internet has really driven a lot of this change hasn't it but of course that's 20 years old now and that almost feels like a lifetime ago it's hard to remember before the internet existed but of course there's there's new tech coming there's ai and there's blockchain mm-hmm. you know how is that going to impact not just marketeers marketing to millennials but the you know the next generation coming through you know do, do brands need to be on top of that now uh, of course people think that it's like it's a little bit further down the line but it's already happening and uh you know it, it, this one with i feel like with internet we had a little bit of time to process what was happening um, whereas with ai it, the transition is happening so fast mm. that um you know the way that is changing people's behaviors even even something as simple as thinking about for example uh, the way that our interaction with Siri or with Alexa um, or Google is changing the way in which we interact with each other. You know, there are times where, uh, say, I'm speaking to Siri uh, and sometimes I feel like saying, thank you. And now I remember, <laughs> oh, it's not, it's not a human being. You know, this is just a machine. And then I'm like, oh, okay, I don't need to say thank you. And over time, these kinds of automatic uh behaviors you you kind of like you can you can transition those or you can um trying to find the word for it you can it extends itself so essentially over time these behavior changes they extend themselves mm. to our behaviors towards each other right and what is really really fascinating and what's really almost uh scary is that in some ways artificial intelligence could convince you that it's emotionally intelligent and it could do that potentially better than humans. Okay. Alan Turing uh, wrote a very interesting piece on this uh, saying that when when people were, when people started um, uh, criticizing him for because he had a lot of a lot of hope, and he was like he was thinking that by the year two thousand we will have um, artificial intelligence that would be a lot more ahead than what it actually happened. Okay, now what he uh, he pointed out something really interesting, you know, and this was such a long time ago, and you think how incredible this guy's mind was and what he was thinking about at the time. He was like, okay, maybe artificial intelligence won't become emotionally intelligent but what if it could convince you that it was okay now what we are seeing 
at this time in our life, and what I'm seeing happening within artificial intelligence is that we are very close to that moment where artificial intelligence may not be intelligent, emotionally intelligent. It may not be able to feel what you are, um, what you are feeling. It may not be able to uh, understand it intrinsically, but it can convince you that it does. Yeah, I mean right? that, that would be very simple to do. I think as well. So your yeah. your example always- there of saying thanks to Siri, which I regularly do, by the way. If Siri then <laughs> yeah. came back and said, "Oh, you're very welcome," then I would. Yeah, yeah but it's not emotionally intelligent. It just knows that's the response to that. Exactly, um, but that has implications mm. for our future, for our jobs. You know, it has implications for mm. um, marketeers. You know, because if you think about so I was giving you the example of if you go to a reception of a hotel or if you go to a store, you walk into the store. There are times that I've gone into stores of, um, you know, some really big brands like even Nike. And I have uh, asked a question from somebody that was uh, on the floor, you know, and they haven't been super helpful. And then I would think to myself, oh, my God, you are so going to be replaced by emotion, by artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Because what if Nike could then employ, um, not, you, you wouldn't call them employ, you know, like you could develop or have uh, assistants that were so human-like. You know, I don't mean necessarily that they were, look like humans, that they had, you know, body and flesh, but in terms of they are helpful to you, you know, in terms of how they are helpful to you. You know, so if you could go into a store and just by looking at a screen, that screen could tell from your, um, and this is already happening, by the way, this is, the, this is being developed. So uh, the sc- you can look into the screen and the screen can know that, for example, you maybe had a bad day, that, you know, that maybe you're stressed today, uh, you know, th- and, and based on that, it could, change the way in which it interacts with you um, and it offers you a product or or maybe in, like today mm-hmm. it, it decides not to offer you a product and just instead why don't you you know like sit down and have champagne you know <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing but yeah, yeah. To, that the level of you know artificial intelligence may not necessarily become emotional intelligence but it can detect how you're feeling and it can respond uh, accordingly in a way that humans may not be able to what an interesting world we are about to uh be living in when all of this ai tech like that comes into existence i think it's fascinating i mean you can see it already with the early uses of chatbots and things where yeah. it's eroding the need to have a real human presence in your your engagement with a brand but yeah, and what honestly, you're describing times, yeah honestly there are times that i go online and i'm talking to a chat box and I really I genuinely can't tell if it's human or, ch- yeah, or a chat. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. me, look, there's so much in there that you've covered. Uh, I, I'm going to have to listen to this about three or four times myself to make sure I pick out all the value in that. So look, th- yeah. thanks a lot for coming on. And I really did enjoy your uh, millennial disruption. I'm not just saying that because you're a guest on the show. I did <laughs> actually enjoy it. So what's coming next then? So you've mentioned you're writing a, a, a piece. Um, yes. No, no, the, the pieces are already out there. The one about the 10 factors, that's already on my blog, so I will send it to you. There's another piece I'm writing about um, employing and uh, retaining millennials. Perfect. But that one is very, very long and then like really in-depth. And then there's a book that I've just been 
uh, offer the book contract to write about. I'm still going through the contract and I haven't signed it yet, but um, it's about the future of work. And uh, it's also very much around these concepts, you know, emotional intelligence and things like that. Brilliant. and then I think the next thing will be um, another documentary about the future of work. Ah, brilliant. So you've got a lot on your plate. But yes. if there are people listening to this and they're, they're liking the sound of Somi and want to get in touch, you know, how, how should they reach out to you? What's the best way to, to talk to you and to, to start a conversation? I would say LinkedIn is the best way because uh, LinkedIn is where everything, uh, all of my best content always goes first on LinkedIn. Um, and then, of course, our website, smartwikimedia.com. Uh, is also where people can uh, connect and, and read and watch uh, further content. Uh, I've also got a new YouTube channel that I'm starting to develop. Uh, and uh, I talk more about emotional intelligence and things like that over there as well. So, uh, But I would say LinkedIn is the first point if you really want to have a conversation. LinkedIn, I'll put that link in the show notes so that people can reach out to you. So, I mean, thanks yeah. so much for joining me. Um, I- I'd love to have you back when you've written your, your future of work piece and just to explore that in some detail as well. But in the meantime, good luck with that book contract. I hope that that works out for you. And I will certainly be following your YouTube channel. So uh, good Thank luck you. and uh, thanks again for joining me. Thank you so much, Andy. Thanks for having me.